Hey everyone, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Jared, and I'm the group's resident here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our mission is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. And so whether you've been following Jesus your whole life or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help you draw near to the person of Jesus, be challenged and encouraged by his word, and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you are in him. Good morning, Frontline. Hey, you guys, it's good to see you again. It's so good to be back with you again if you're watching with us online. uh, Great to have you with us as well. Uh, If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Brian, and uh, I get to serve as the senior pastor of the Zero Collective Network that Courtney was just talking about a moment ago. Um, There's four churches that Frontline is not only a part of, but Frontline actually helped to give birth to. Um, So it's just awesome to be uh, back with you again. And all of the churches, what we're doing is Uh, In the month of December, we've been looking at the different angel visitations that happen in the Christmas story, which is kind of interesting. In the Bible, you don't hear a lot from the angels up until the moment of Jesus' birth, and then, you know, you don't hear a ton from them afterward, but they're very present uh, during, you know, the Christmas story that we celebrate. And so uh, we're we're looking at that every single week, and so the the Christmas angel visitation that we're looking at today uh, throughout church history has, has come to be known as the Annunciation big fancy word. It's the moment where the angel Gabriel meets with Mary to tell her that she's going to be the mother of Jesus. And so why do we even need to talk about this? Why did an angel need to come? Why is there a Christmas story? The place we have to begin today is uh, the whole reason it all had to happen is because we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that is sinful. Things are not the way God intended them to be. You know that, don't you? Uh, we, we feel it. I almost feel like it gets increased. We feel it during this time of year. Uh, for instance, I just learned this past week, did you know that one Christmas cookie is 170 calories, give or take, depending on what kind of Christmas cookie? My favorite Christmas cookies are those peanut butter ones with the sugar and the Hershey's Kiss in the middle. Oh, man. 170 calories for one of those. Here's what I just learned this past a couple weeks ago. One piece of celery is only 15 calories. Why is it that everything that tastes good is bad for you, yet everything that tastes terrible is actually good for you. It's because our world is sinful, that's why. (laughs) Our world is broken, and don't tell me you crave healthy food. That's not the way our world works. You don't crave healthy food. I crave peanut butter at 11 p.m., that's what I crave. And in fact, uh, even just last night I did this, I take one of those Christmas cookies and I put peanut butter on it, and I eat it at 11 p.m. I don't do that all the time, but it's Christmas, and I feel it's what baby Jesus would want, so that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Our world is broken, our world is sinful, and uh, yet, that's that's exactly why there was a need for the Christmas story to happen. Um, Go ahead, if you will, show that picture. There's there's this image that I've been coming back to the last several years, every time around this time of year, that's just become very, very meaningful to me. Uh, This was a drawing that was done by a nun in 2005 who lives in Iowa. So it was never meant to like, you know, make the rounds around the world, but it has. It's gone all over the place. In fact, how many of you have seen this image? I think maybe we've even shown it here once or once before. So yeah, a few of you. So uh, this depicts Eve and Mary. So Eve, the very first woman in the story, she's clutching the fruit with her her right hand. Uh, Eve brings about sin into our world. But the second woman, Mary, brings about the Savior into our world. And there's just so much in this image. You see that, you know, the despair, the brokenness. You see the the serpent wrapped around Eve's 
uh, leg. And, but I love, you know, that she's got her hand on Mary's pregnant belly, recognizing that hope comes through her to our world. Hope come, comes into our world through Mary. And it's oftentimes, you know, when we talk about Mary, and we're talking about Mary this morning, a lot of times when we talk about Mary, we think about her this time of year, people talk about the faith of Mary, just her incredible, extraordinary faith that she had. But what's interesting, and you're going to see this when we get into the text here in a moment, is that one of the first things the angel says to Mary is, fear not. Fear not, or, or depending on your translation, don't be afraid. Which makes me think that Mary was terrified. If the angel had to say, don't be afraid, something tells me that, that Mary was absolutely terrified and she had fear, she was afraid. Now, oftentimes, when we talk about faith, we think about faith and fear as totally opposite, right? Like we think about faith as, you know, being the absence of fear or, you know, fear is the absence of faith. It's like you have one or the other. You either have fear or you have faith. You, you don't have both. But I would tell you, I think it's possible to have great faith and, and really understand who God is and yet still be full of fear. In fact, I think that's where God wants to meet us today. When we think about this next season of our lives, when we think about 2024, I think God wants to meet us this morning in the place of our deepest fears, our anxieties, the what-ifs of life, the things that that we're concerned about and that we worry about. And so I want to talk with you today about the fear of what God might be asking you to do as we look ahead into the next year. And we're going to look at what an angel says to a teenage girl named Mary. So the text we're in this morning is Luke chapter 1. We're going to have the passage up here on the screen. And before we jump in, a little bit of context. Mary, at the time when this passage happens, she would have been about 14 or 15 years old, which was marrying age for Jewish women. And she grew up in a town called Nazareth. Nazareth in in first century Israel was, we think, about 400 people. So picture, this is like a small town. Everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everybody's business. You know what I'm saying? So a pregnant teenage girl, that's a scandal. That's an embarrassment that everybody is talking about. This is what happens. Verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. 
And what I find really interesting as we've kind of walked through these angel visitations in the story is, do you remember a couple weeks ago, uh, David just did an awesome job starting out this series. He talked about Zechariah and the angel visiting Zechariah. You remember this? And remember, Zechariah expresses doubt, doesn't he? He expresses doubt. He asks questions. He expresses fear. Do you remember what happens to, to Zechariah when he did that? Anybody? Just say it out loud. He's hit, yeah, he, he's told he can't speak. He's made mute for the entire rest. The angels are like, okay, you're going to shut up until the baby's born. That's what happens to him. He's like, he gets punished. He gets the smack down for it. Did you notice Mary, when she expresses doubt, when she asks questions, she's almost like exalted, like lifted up as like an example for all of us. Why is that? Why is it that one person gets punished and the other person gets lifted up? I, I think it's because apparently in, in God's eyes, he doesn't respond to all doubt the same way. God doesn't have like a systematic, you know, one-size-fits-all response to our doubts. And I would say not all doubts are equal. Not all doubts are expressed in the same way. If you remember the story a couple weeks ago of Zechariah, what he does is he really questions whether God is able to do what he says. In fact, his, his response is kind of like, prove it. How will I, what proof are you going to give me for this? But Mary, the way she expresses doubt, I, I would kind of put it in, into this question. She kind of says, if I trust God, if I really trust God with what he's calling me to do, what's going to happen to me? What am I going to have to go through? What is going to happen in my life if I really trust him? And I would tell you that's a kind of doubt that all of us can relate to. I've said that. I'm guessing many of you, as you've thought about the claims of Christ and what it means to, to put your, your faith and your trust in Jesus and really follow him, the kind of doubt that, that Mary's expressing is like, okay, but, but what's, what is that going to mean for me? I'm afraid. What am I going to have to go through? What, what kind of humiliation is going to happen if I really trust you? And so here's what I want to do. I just want to ask the question, what can we learn from Mary and her response? So just three thoughts from this passage we just read. What can we learn when, when we face doubts, when we have fears about what God's asking us to do? What can we learn from Mary and her response? The first thing is that faith happens in stages. Faith happens in stages. Almost nobody goes from uncommitted to fully committed to God in one move, in one second. I mean, at least some people, maybe a few, they're the vast minority Almost everyone goes through a, a process. There's faith happens in our lives in stages. And what you see here, uh, you know, is that, you know, it's different for every single person. Everybody has kind of their own journey to come to faith. There's not kind of one standardized way it happens. Mary did not just have blind faith. Do you see that in the story? She fears, she doubts, you know, she asks questions all on this kind of journey to eventually having faith until the very end where she says that line that the Beatles made famous, let it be to me as you said in your word. There's a journey to get there. Just like Mary, for every single one of us, our, our, our path to putting our faith and our trust in Jesus looks different. It's individual to us. God has to come to us and reveal himself to us in a way that makes sense to us. This is why 
You can have a person who comes to church their whole life and they hear the gospel message 300 times and then somehow on the 301st time they hear the gospel message, it's like their eyes are opened and they see the beauty of the gospel and they finally get it. It's like it intersects their life at just the right moment and they get it and they say things like, why didn't I never hear this all the years of my life going to church? Well, you did. It just, there was a moment where the state, the, your faith in the stages it was in broke through. There's still a moment where we have to choose our faith over our fears, but those things happen in stages. Here's why I tell you that. Don't be discouraged if you still have doubts, if you've got some questions. Maybe you've been coming to Frontline. Maybe you've been watching online, and you're like, I like this Jesus guy. I like, you know, the way I feel when I'm connected to church or when I'm looking at what the Bible says, but I've got this question, I've got that question. Don't be discouraged if you aren't all there in one move. Faith happens in stages. In the same way, I would say don't be discouraged if your child isn't just completely turning around on the path that they're on and have just completely given their life back to Christ. Don't be discouraged if your sister this Christmas doesn't just fall down on her knees and repent of her sin and, you know, ask Jesus into her life. Sometimes I think we don't celebrate the small steps of progress that people take. If, if you take one of those cards that's on your seat and you invite someone, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor with you to come to to one of our Christmas services a week from now, and they actually say yes and they come, even if they don't accept Christ, even if they don't get there all in one moment, that's progress. Even for someone to be open to having a spiritual conversation about faith, that's progress, okay? Faith happens in stages. That's the first thing we see. Mary, there's this journey to get there. Secondly, and this one is way less encouraging, (laughs) God's purpose is more dangerous than our plan. It's one of the things we see in in this text. I wish this wasn't true. I, I wish it wasn't true in the Bible. I wish it wasn't true in my own life, but it is. Almost never are our safe plans for our life actually what God wants to accomplish in terms of his purpose for our lives. Almost never are those things the same thing. So much more often, we are invited as we learn to trust Jesus, as we learn to follow him, we're invited to sacrifice our plans, to lay our plans down so that we can live out the purposes that God has for our lives. But here's what I've discovered. His purpose is always better than my plan. Always. It's always better than my plan. Mary had some plans, didn't she? (laughs) Right? Mary had plans. She's going to marry Joseph. And that day, an engagement would take about a year. And, you know, during that that period of time, Joseph would have been building on to the family insula. So he had a place to prepare Mary to come. And so her plan was, I'm going to marry Joseph. I'm going to move into the family insula. And then we're going to have children. Then we're going to have family. Then we're going to have a life. That was a safe life. That was a life that provided for her. That was a life that provided protection for her. God's purpose for her life was so much different. It was going to thrust her into embarrassment, humiliation, even suffering. Yet his plan, his purpose is always better than our plans, even though it's always more dangerous. 
this past summer, I was on a three-month sabbatical, and I did a whole lot of stuff during that sabbatical. One of the things I did was I read some of the biographies of some of the great missionaries of the last couple hundred years of our faith, of the Christian faith. Uh, one of them I read about was a guy by the name of William Carey. Uh, we've got his picture here. Uh, William Carey went to India, and gave, with his young family, he moved there uh, as a missionary to India. And there, he was there for seven years. For seven years, not a single convert. Nobody gave their life to Jesus for seven years. Nothing happens. During the time he was there in India, his son Peter uh, contracted dysentery and died. And his wife, as a result of that, some other hard things they experienced, she slowly began to lose the battle with her mental health. Her mental health just deteriorated and deteriorated further and further. But after over 20 years in India, William Carey managed to translate the Bible into dozens and dozens of Indian dialects. And the impact was just exponential, the people who came to Christ and the impact he had. So much to the point where William Carey today is referred to as the father of modern missions. Because he became kind of the template. He became the model for how he did missions for so much after that. Because the impact he had was so great. Another person I read about uh, was a guy by the name of Peter Milne. Peter Milne was part of a group of missionaries uh, who, were, who felt called by God to give their entire lives to go and preach the gospel to these islands in the South Pacific, where there are these tribes of people that had never heard the gospel. And so very famously, what Peter Milne did is he bought a one-way ticket on a ship to this island out in the, in the South Pacific, and he packed all the belongings that he owned into his own coffin. That's commitment. He sailed there and gave his life preaching the gospel Tons of, of people came to Christ. I'm told you can still go and see his tombstone to, the, to this day. On the tombstone, the people, the tribes people that he gave his life uh, serving wrote this. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to get you to see is the reason that we talk about Mary and her life or for that matter, William Carey or Peter, Peter Milne or you know, countless others throughout the history of our faith. The reason we celebrate Mary's life is not because her life was safe, not because her life was easy, not because it was filled with money or, or you know, comforts or luxuries or those kind of things. We celebrate Mary's life because of the purpose of God that she said yes to. At the Annunciation, Mary doesn't get safety. She gets a child that she has no place to lay his head. A child that she will not be able to save from a violent death while she watches. Mary says yes to Jesus. She's incarnated with Christ, and the rest is history. It's the same for us. It's the same for you. It's the same for me. What I'm, what I'm saying is, you know, maybe in 2024, Something is going to happen in your life, something you didn't count on, something that's difficult. Maybe you're going to lose your job, let's say. And in that moment, losing your job, you're going to say, God, how could you do this to me? How could you allow this to happen? How am I going to pay these bills? Where are you right now, God? And then in the midst of that moment, you're going to, you know, out, out of just pure desperation and having no other options, you're going to start the business that you've always kind of had in the back of your head. And years from now, you're going to look back and you're going to go, wow, what I thought was a curse was actually a blessing. 
God's purpose for my life was so much different than my plans. At some point, we have to be okay with that if we want to see God really do what he wants to do in our lives. And then lastly, the third thing uh, that we see, don't put it up here just yet, uh, really, it's, it's the third and final kind of idea that you, that you see in this story. Um, it actually happens uh, in terms of what the angel says when he first speaks to Mary. So I'm going to read it to you again. It's not going to be up on the screen. I'm just going to read it. This is verse 28. It says, The angel went to Mary and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Here's what's interesting to me. Mary already believed in God, didn't she? She's a Jewish girl growing up in first century Israel. She already believed in God. She knew who God was. But Mary does not yet have everything she needs to be able to trust God and actually live out the the purposes God has for her life. And everything she's going to need to say yes and to trust God is right there in what the angel said to her when he first encounters her. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. He's not a God who's far away. Emmanuel means he's God who's with us. He's with you and he's good. That fact, that word when it says, Mary, you are highly favored, it's the Greek word charis. It's where we get our word for grace. It's how we describe God's grace. God's grace, we say, is his unmerited favor to us. Okay, in other words, the angel is saying to Mary, Mary, God's favor is on you, not because of something you did. It's not like, you know, God's been watching you. You've had a pretty good year, you know, because you've done some really great things. You're getting an A in the course. I'll tell you what, I'm going to introduce this very dangerous plan into your life. That's not, that's not what ha- what's happening here. What's happening is the angel is literally saying, because God is so good, because he, his purposes are so righteous, because he knows all, because he is so good, he has chosen to reach out to you, Mary, that even though you didn't earn it, even though you didn't deserve it, in his goodness and his grace to you, he is reaching out to you to invite you into this very dangerous plan for your life because of his goodness. Do you notice what Mary's response is? Did you catch it? In verse 29, it says, Mary questioned and wondered what kind of a greeting this would be. (laughs) Literally, the angel is like, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And Mary's like, oh no, what's what's about to happen? What's gonna happen now? That's that's how Mary responds. You know what I think is happening here in this moment? I I think what's happening here is, is Mary's troubled by it because she is questioning the goodness of God. She already believes he's God, an angel visiting her. She never balks at that. What she questions, what she fears is whether or not he's good. So let me ask you a question. What do you do when you question the goodness of someone? What do you do when you have someone in your life who you question the goodness of them? I'll tell you what you do. All of us do it. You limit their access to you. That's what you do. You don't give them your cell phone number. You you don't accept their friend request. You avoid them at the family gathering. You kind of keep your kids away from them. If you're questioning the goodness of someone, you, you don't talk to them about certain aspects of your life. You limit their access to your life. That's what we all do. That's human nature. That's what Mary's doing here in this moment. The, the, the biggest thing, the final thing that we learn, I think it's the most important thing that, that we learn from Mary and her response, is that God can be trusted not just because he is God, 
but because he is good. For some of you in this room, for some of you watching online, the issue you need to settle in your heart is not whether or not he's God. You've already settled that issue. You're here in church. You believe he's God. The issue you have yet to settle in your heart is whether or not he's actually good. There's been some stuff in your life. There's been some things that have happened that you don't have some great explanations for. It is possible to believe he is God, to be coming to church and saying, yes, I I worship you, I believe you're God, and yet still be limiting his access to your life because you're questioning his goodness. God, you can have this part of my life, but you can't have my finances. You can't have my family. You you can't have my my plans, my future, whatever it is. You can't have that. I'm going to limit your access, but you can have this part of my life. And the real issue that we have to settle is actually what we believe in faith about him. Is he good? Not whether he's God. Is he he good? I've done that. I've questioned that. More times than I can count. The the one I'll I'll tell you about, uh, my, my wife and I have four boys. When our third son, Aaron, was two years old, we went to the doctor's appointment that you go to. If all of you have been parents, you know this. You go to that two-year-old doctor appointment where they have this checklist of things that at a two-year-old stage, this is what they're developmentally supposed to be doing. And I'll never forget that doctor's appointment uh, because Aaron was literally not doing anything, not a single thing on that checklist at two years old. None of it. That appointment was the very first appointment where the doctor, we ever heard a doctor use the word autism to describe what we were encountering with our son and, and the developmental delays that were happening. That, that one doctor's visit, I, I feel like it's like kind of changed the trajectory of our entire lives. We left those parents there. We're, we, I've never seen them again. I remember some of the questions were just kind of weird. Some of them were kind of painful. I remember one of the questions was, does he know where his shoes are? Like, if you point to his shoes, does he go get his shoes? I remember Carrie just saying, he doesn't even know what shoes are. Another one of the questions uh, was, does he know his brother's names? And Carrie just said, he doesn't even know he has brothers. And, and so we began this, this kind of journey of, like, what do, how do we learn how to parent a totally different way And here was my impulse, especially during those early years of Aaron's life, during his developmental years. Um, So my impulse was to sort of, you know, like limit people's access to Aaron. That was my impulse. And it wasn't to be mean. It was because I honestly wanted to protect him. So especially, you know, I'm a pastor. We were always at church. And so there were always people around. We were always going somewhere where there were people. And so I would say, you know, maybe we could, maybe, you know, if we're going to go here, maybe we could get a babysitter. Aaron could just stay behind. You know, maybe if we go, we could have something else, somewhere else for him to go. I always kind of wanted to limit people's access to Aaron. That was always my impulse because you never knew what he was going to do, you know, or, 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 or say. We were told uh, that he might never even talk. And he didn't for a number of years. And we, but, you know, we go out in public and he'd do things. And so I, you never knew how people were going to respond. That was the issue. And so because you never knew how people were going to respond, my impulse was always like, okay, we, we need to just sort of limit people's access and kind of protect him. And I realize now, now that he's older and it's been years later, I realize now that by limiting people's access to Aaron, I was actually limiting God's access to Aaron. It's amazing. 
But some of the most important critical people in Aaron's development over the years have been people from our faith community, people from this church, as a matter of fact. God, it was amazing. God would just bring the right people into our lives for exactly the season of life we were in and what he needed for the next stage of development. And my impulse was almost always to go like, we don't need you, thanks a lot anyway. Thank God for my wife, Carrie, who always has more faith than me in this kind of stuff. I remember the line she would always say, she would say, listen, the outcome is God's responsibility. Trust and obedience is ours. No, we're not gonna get a babysitter for him and keep him back. God called us to this life. He called us to go. We're gonna go where people are. We're gonna let happen. Whatever happens, the outcome is God's responsibility. Trust and obedience. As she'd always say, trust and obedience is our, our responsibility. <laughs> that, that line, the outcome is God's. Trust and obedience is ours. That line was in my head May 20th of this year. On May 20th of this year, our son Aaron, who we were told might never ever talk and didn't even know he had brothers, gave the best man speech at his brother's wedding. The joy I feel when I look at that picture, it's become one of my most um, prized possessions, that picture. I can't even put into words the joy I feel. I guess what I'm trying to tell you is he's not just God. He is also good. You could trust him. Don't limit his access to you. Don't limit his access to your life, to your family, to every nook and cranny. The outcome is his responsibility. Trust and obedience, that's, your, that's yours, that's mine. We go back to that picture of Eve and Mary. The beautiful thing about the gospel message, the thing that we celebrate really about Mary and about everything this time of year is that God didn't do that to us. He didn't limit our access to him. The whole point of what the angel spoke to Mary, the whole point of the Christmas story is that God was born through a woman. He became man. He became a human being and lived a life among us and then offered his life on a sacrificial death on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins so that we could have the ultimate access to God. So that Hebrews says that literally we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was one of us. And now the access we have, we can go boldly into the throne room of God and we can ask for help and for mercy for whatever we need. We can ask for what we need because of the access he gave us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we have hope. He's not just God. He's good. So to wrap up, go ahead if you will. The question... I want us to think about it as, as we go into prayer here, as we respond and worship. As you think about your own 2024, as you think about this next season of life, what is God asking you to do? Or maybe even more importantly, what, what is he asking you to believe? Maybe he's asking you to do something and you, you know it. He's stirring in your heart. Maybe he's asking you to start a ministry or go back to college or, or break up with someone. Maybe he's asking you to 
mend a relationship with someone, to forgive someone that's hurt you. But underneath every one of those things that God might be asking you to do, there's fears. And underneath those fears, there's something he's asking you to believe about himself. What is God asking you to believe about who he is so that you can do what he's asking you to do in faith? Do you need to believe that he's a provider? Do you need to believe that he's a healer? Do you need to believe that he's a father to the fatherless? Or do you just need to believe that he is good? He's good. What we believe about God determines how we respond in faith and obedience to him. Would you pray with me? So Jesus, we just come to you and just acknowledge that you are worthy. You're the only one who's worthy of our highest praise, of our highest adoration because of what you did for us. You didn't limit our access to you and to God. You, you came. And this morning you're here right now. You're present in this moment right now. And so Jesus, we turn to you. We entrust our lives to you. Uh, like Mary, we've got doubts. We've got fears. We say, man, I want to say yes to God, but what's going to happen to me if I do? What's, what's going to happen on the other side of that? And God, it, it seems like your plans are always more dangerous or your purposes are always more dangerous than what our plans are for our lives. And so this morning we just say, God, you can have it all. We won't limit our access to you. We, we release our tightly clenched fists and we trust that you are not just God, you are good you are able. You are the one who has it all figured out. And ultimately, you will show yourself faithful as we trust you. And so this morning, we lean into that. We ask you to lead us. And all these things we ask in Jesus' powerful name. And everyone said, amen. We hope this message encouraged you in seeing who God is and who you are in him. If you want to take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com slash next. We look forward to connecting with you there and we'll see you back here next week.